it's great to be here with you on the Canandaigua campus. If you're here in the room, if you're watching us on live stream or throughout the week online, and a special shout out to our church family at the Hopewell campus. Great to, to be with you once again, to be able to have you uh, engage in these services. Uh, we are looking at the series, Back to Basics, and we understand no matter what discipline you look at, that, that really to be able to advance in that discipline is built upon the basics, the foundation, whether it be sports or, or a career, and, and even in our faith, that when we look at our faith in Jesus Christ, that, that as believers, in order for us to exercise that faith, to grow in Christ, we must continually come back to the basics, the foundational truths uh, of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 1 through 8, which we are studying. He takes us back to the basics so that not only can we understand the gospel, but we're then able to grow, as we're going to look at in the weeks to come, to grow and actually exercise our faith in a practical way in and through our life each and every day. Now, up to this point, Paul has, has really shared the, the bad news. And you'll remember that I said the reason he does that is for us to truly understand how good the good news is. We need to understand how bad the bad news is. Now, Paul does in in Romans 1.16, he gives us a heads up on how good the good news is. Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. Then we get to Romans 1.25. He says, but here's the bad news. People have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then Romans 2.4, he says, but it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what Paul does this week, he takes us through that the last part of his bad news and ushers us into the good news. And keep in mind this kindness of God this goodness of God that we even sang about this morning, that God is a good God, but He's a just God. And how does the just God both deal justly with sin and also be the justifier that allows us to have life in Him? And that's where Paul's going to take us. Now remember I shared that I believe Paul shares the bad news really in two parts because he wants us to understand from whatever perspective we're coming from. And I went back to Jesus' parable of what I will say is the prodigal son's quarrel. And when Jesus shares that parable, he says there's two sons. There's one who has sinned in a very obvious way. In other words, that son's sin has been very, very, very bad. And that some of you in this room can relate to him. And you sit back and say, I have a story. The things I have done have been very, very bad on any one scale. And you can relate to that younger son. But Jesus also shares about an older brother. And Paul, last week, addresses that older brother. He says, now the older brother, he looks at the younger brother and says, I am not nearly as bad as him. Like, I've actually been pretty, pretty good. And I've been with dad this whole time. And it would be like us saying, you know, I go to church every week, right? That's what the older brother says. I've been with dad all the time. And so dad owes me. It's like us saying we go to church all the time, so God owes me. Well, let me let you in a little secret. If you haven't figured it out, God owes you nothing. It's not the point. But what the point is, is that whether you identify with the younger son or the older son, both sons are in the same predicament. They both sinned against the father. They're both in need of salvation. 
And no matter who you identify with this morning, whether you identify with the younger or the older brother, the truth is, is that we're all in the same situation. And so look what Paul writes, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Remember, he's dealing with the older brother there. It's like the older brother. Are we any better off because we had the word of God, because we're God's chosen people? Are we any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Older brothers, younger brothers, all of us in humanity are under sin, and we've been condemned. So Paul then goes to the Old Testament. He wants to make sure, he wants to nail this point home that we're all in the same predicament. And so he wants his Jewish brethren to know he didn't just make this up, this isn't a new teaching, but he goes back to a chain of Old Testament quotations that that from the very beginning, even the chosen people of God were told they were in the same predicament with everyone else. So look what he writes. Remember, these are Old Testament quotes sort of written back to back to back. Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Catch verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that word fear doesn't mean terror. The word fear there means respect and all. There's no respect or all to God. And he's speaking of the chosen people to be able to say, listen, we're all in the same boat. I don't know if, if you've noticed, but since the beginning of humanity, there's been a problem with us. That Adam and Eve tried to usurp God and become God themselves. In the very second generation, their very own children, murder enters into the world. And, and dare I say that we may have lived uh, longer than, than that, right? We're, we're further from that those events in history, but we haven't progressed morally. That we still have the same issues the very first original family had existing in our midst. And, and Paul points this out. He says, listen... You can use your lives, your lips, your tongue, your mouth. You can use your lives to either glorify God or to sin. And he's wanting us to understand the problem is that humanity is corrupt from head to toe. Sin is the truest and greatest leveler before God. And again, so whether you identify yourself with the younger brother and and sit back and say, listen, Greg, I know I've done wrong. Or whether you're relating more to the older brother and saying, I don't think I've done as wrong as the other person. Here's the point. We are all on equal standing before the cross. All are condemned. All are in trouble. And that's certainly bad news. Then we read Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Camp there for a minute. In other words, no matter how hard we work, we will never be justified before God. That, That Christianity isn't about working our way to salvation. Right here it says it's impossible to do so. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified.
justify in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What, what's he saying? When there's an effect in and in a, in a result of the law, what's the effect of the law? The effect of the law is we understand what sin is. If you look in the Word, you find out, wow, we shouldn't murder. Murder's wrong. You understand that, right? You got really quiet. We're all on the same page. Murder's not a good thing? All right. We, we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't be jealous. Now, as we look at Scripture and we learn what morality is, and it reveals it to us, we, 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 we find out what sin is. We also look at the result, that when we look at the fact that all of us then have broken the law, all of us have sinned, we understand that the sentence is death. That we've all been giving the sentence of death because of the sin in our life. But here's the goodness of God. Remember, the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. That the sentence has been given, but it hasn't been commenced. You're still taking oxygen, aren't you? And so if you're sitting here, the sentence has been given, but hasn't been commenced. And therefore, when we reject Jesus, when we reject the gospel, we're really sinning against the goodness of God. That's what we're really doing. We're sinning against the goodness of God. God is good. We're going to see that Paul says that he's just, but also the justifier. And what should his kindness do? It should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to, to come and, and, and want to be his. It should lead us to, to be able to, 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 to make a decision and say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to live with you. But here's the problem. Some people stop listening when they hear the bad news. They hear the bad news and they don't want to go any further. And that's a shame because as bad as the bad news is, the good news is so, so, so good. Look what Paul writes, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That right there is a hinge verse. So much of what we understand about God and, and Christianity is, is hinged on, on that teaching, that, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, if the only way we could be righteous is through the law, and none of us can keep the law, none of us can be made right with God. Does that make sense? But if there's a righteousness apart from the law, then we have hope. If there's a different type of righteousness, a, a, a righteousness that we can have access to apart from the law, then, there, then there's hope. And we understand that the righteousness of, is, of God is revealed in, that in two ways. It's revealed in His anger against sin, because God is a just God, and so He needs to deal with sin. In fact, I shared with you, I think it was last week, and I think it's true for most of us, we want God to be just in everyone else's case. We don't want God to be necessarily just in ours. Right? Take care of them, God, but let me not, don't take care of that, right? God is a just God. He's angered at sin. But he's also, his justice is also seen in the fact of his great love for you and me, his love for sinners. Now the problem is, is that we often, as people, confuse what it means that God is righteous and then look at our righteousness. We confuse his righteousness and our righteousness. And so there's common thoughts out there. We'll call this a universal thought. That, that there are those who would say something like this. Maybe you've heard it. God is too good to condemn us. God's too good to condemn us. Well, God cannot be too good to condemn if he's just. And if he's not just, he's not good. And maybe you've heard this. We'll call this a Unitarian view. Human beings are too good to be condemned by God. 
you know, deep down, we're all just good people. Well, I want to share with you what the gospel tells us. Deep down, we're not really all that good. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Look at the world. If you don't want to look at yourself, just look at the world. Like I said, the trajectory since Adam and Eve hasn't been the more goodness. It's just a lot more of us around, which means a whole lot more corruption. Am I encouraging you this morning? Then you have what I was called the Pelagian view, and that word may not mean enough to you, but they would say something like this. All human beings could be upright before God in their own efforts if they just tried hard enough. You see a lot of older brother people, you know, looking at the younger brothers who are doing things really bad, saying, yeah, they just get their act together and just work really hard at it, like me. Right? Then there's sort of the semi-Pelagian view that all human beings could be upright before God if he would just give them a little bit of help. And there's, there's a fallacy, like, we only need a little bit of help. Like, we need a whole lot of help. How many of you can say that? We need a whole lot of help. And then lastly, we'll see sort of the Pharisee view. The Pharisee people, this legalism view. That's that the common people are not equipped to be upright before God, but those of us who know and obey the law of Moses can be and are upright. Now, I would also call that the, the born in church view sometimes around people who, you know, they, they were literally like born and they were here like that day. You know what I mean? And they've been there the whole time and they, they can easily get into this view because they've been raised up in the good teachings of Christ. That is a great thing, by the way. I don't make fun of that at all. They, they, they've been raised in this. But, they, but sometimes it can create this us and them type mentality. That older brother mentality again. We're like, we can do it because we know the truth, but they can't do it. But here's what Paul teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. No one is upright before God. Those without the Bible are not upright before God. Moralists are not upright before God. Jews are not upright before God. Those of us in the church with the Bible are not upright before God. No one measures up. We're all on equal standing before the cross. No matter how good you believe you are or how good people tell you you are, you're not good enough. And no matter how bad you are or how bad people tell you you are, you're not any further away than anyone else from God. We're all on equal standing before the cross. And you may ask yourself, then how can somebody be eternally condemned who in just their short years of life, 72 years compared to eternity, such a short period, have sinned? And maybe they haven't sinned all that bad, right? Maybe it's not big sense. And here's the problem. We're not looking at sin right. We're not looking at the violation right. It's not how much you've sinned. It's not how big or small you've sinned. It's who we've sinned against. That's the issue. That we've sinned against the perfect God. And, and any sin against an infinite God has infinite consequences. Francis Schaeffer illustrates it this way. It's as if we're standing at the end of this of this chasm, this infinite chasm of guilt before God. Infinite chasm of guilt. Any finite sin against an infinite God is infinite consequences. And, and, and what do we want to do? We want to try to fill up that chasm. And so we look for buckets of righteousness, if we could even find any in our life. And we start pouring them into the chasm. How many buckets would it take to fill, how many finite buckets of righteousness would it take to fill an infinite chasm of guilt? It can't be filled. You can't work enough. You you couldn't ever fill it. it it's just not going to happen. And this seems so, so hopeless. But there's hope. Look what Paul writes, Romans 3, 21 
3.26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look like and look at in a minute. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Listen, the only reason God saves sinners is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing we've done, but because of everything God has done. And notice that Paul affirms what he's previously stated, that is teaching that this isn't new teaching. It's, 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 it's been in the Old Testament, it's in the, whole, in the New Testament, it's the whole counsel of Scripture, but there is a righteousness of God apart from the law. And that's definitely good news. Because see, when we look at salvation at its basis, it's, it's a legal issue. We've been found guilty. Found guilty before God, and someone had to pay that price. And none of us could pay it. There's not one of us that's good enough to pay that price. So what did God do? God paid the price that he did not owe on our behalf. He sent Jesus Christ to die in our stead. That's good news. And so to understand this, let's look at our sin, let's look at our Savior, let's look at our salvation. Our sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The way that that, that, that verb is tensed, it, it could read this way. In the past all have sinned, in the present all have sinned, all are falling short. What's that mean? Salvation by works is impossible from every single direction. Like we couldn't do it in the past, we can't do it in our present, we can't do it in our future. That's why our only hope is that God will find some way to justify us freely without the need of a single iota of merit on our part. That, 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 that we have no action we can take as far as works in order to be saved. And that leads us to our Savior. It's important to note that God must remain absolutely just. What do I mean by that? God is the moral standard. And, and, and this is so important we wrap our mind around this. But a society without God cannot come up with the true moral standards. In other words, a majority, you hear this, can a majority be wrong? Quite often, by the way. Look at the Old Testament. When people did what was right in their own eyes, the groups got together and said, well, this seems good to us. And you go, that's not good. And so God is the moral standard. In fact, I've asked people who are investigating the things of Christ. I've just simply asked them. I said, how do you know right and wrong? Well, I've been taught right and wrong. Well, how do they know right and wrong? Do you realize in our country there was a time where almost every law we had had a scripture verse written next to it? Because God is the moral standard. In fact, an individual who's tightly related to our area, Charles, Charles Finney, was studying to be a lawyer. The Charles Finney revival that happened throughout this Finger Lakes region. The Charles Finney was studying law. He was not a Christ follower, did not believe in God. 
but he was impacted by the fact that as he was studying law, all these laws were pointing back to Scripture. And he began to come to this reality. There has to be a moral standard outside ourselves in order for us to understand what morality truly is. And one day, this this person who didn't believe there was a God said, I know there has to be something, someone, something out there. It just only makes sense. And he headed into the woods, and he said, I'm not leaving this woods until that person reveals himself to me. And he came to Christ. And a revival came across this region. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you realize I've shared this before, but you might know that this was known as the burned over district. What's that mean? Then he got to a point where the gospel so saturated this area that he was telling church planners and missionaries and preachers, go elsewhere, this area is covered with the gospel. Now I share that with you with tremendous burden because we are no longer the burned over district. In fact, three of the cities in our backyard are the most unreached cities in the in this country. They're in the top 15. Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse. More unchurched than almost any other city in the country. Those three cities. There's a lot of work to be done here, but what God has done before, I believe He wants to do again. I believe He wants to bring revival fire across this region. That people would know the truth of the gospel. The moral absolute that is God. So Romans 3.26 is so crucial. It says why? It was to show, God showed what? Through the finished work of Christ on the cross, it was to show His righteousness at this present time. Catch this. So that He might be just and the justifier of and the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God has to be just. The, the, the payment has to be made for our sins. And the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God saw our need, realized we couldn't pay it, and He paid it on our behalf. This is what we call the 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 the, 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 the atonement of Jesus Christ in our life, the, the substitutional atonement. That's our salvation. Look at Romans 3.25. Whom God put forward, He's talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Paul looks at salvation in three prongs. And for us to really understand as we read through Scripture what God has offered us and what we have received in Jesus Christ, all three of them are important. We go into the weeds and understand a little bit. The first is propitiation. There's a word you may have never heard or never used in your life. It's a religious term. It comes right out of the temple in Jerusalem. And it especially made sense when you, if you were there during the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they would take a goat who became the sacrificial goat. He represented the sins of the entire people of God. So imagine you're there, you know you've sinned that year, and you, you know that it needs to be covered. They'd bring a goat, and they would sacrifice the goat on your behalf. And then the priest would take the blood of that goat, the blood, because life is in the blood would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a symbol of God's covering of your sins. Now that's from the Old Testament. Fast forward to what Jesus did, the Lamb of God. He took our sins and bore them on the cross. He was killed. And by His blood, we've been set free. He died in our stead. That's what's meant by substitutional atonement. 
I have a friend in this church who's a missionary, and he was raising funds. He went to a local church in this area, and the pastor said to him, I'm sorry, we can't back you. We don't believe in the substitutional atonement. My, my friend said, oh, okay, thank you, and left, and then immediately called me and said, Craig, what is the substitutional atonement that this person doesn't believe in? And I said, tell me, you were in a church, and the church leader said, and one of their leaders said they didn't believe in the substitutional atonement. He said, yes. I said, what it means, first of all, is they should close their door because there's no reason to gather as a church if you don't believe in the substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ. He said, well, what is it? I said, it simply means Jesus died in our stead. If Jesus didn't die in our stead, we'd be left in the same hopeless state Paul was talking about in the previous verses. And we would have no hope because Jesus died for us, we are made right with God. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. His righteousness becomes ours. What does it mean? It means, it means God's anger is removed from us because we are covered with the blood of Jesus. And he no longer sees us as sinners, but catches us as saints. So don't go around telling everyone you're saint whoever. But we're saints in Jesus. That's our position. And what do we do? We're to believe it to be true in our case. We are to receive it by faith. The second prong is justification. Justification is, comes from the language of the court. And we've looked at this quite a bit, so I won't dig much deeper into it, but we've been found guilty. That price had to be paid. The only way it could be paid was by a perfect sacrifice. There's only one perfect sacrifice. That's God himself. And that's why I've said many times, people will tell you they love you, but God has shown it. For God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son, come on church, to die for us. Not because He owed us anything, but because He just loves us so, so much. And you may be sitting here this morning, and you may never have even been told that you have been loved. You may have never been told you're accepted. And I want you to hear now that God says, I love you, and through Jesus Christ I accept you. He says, come to me, my beloved, and be made right. And so what did Jesus do? He, he, he died in our stead so we could be found not guilty before God. And what is our response? It's to believe it to be true in our case. It is to receive it by faith. But then the third prong is, is redemption. And that, that's a commercial term. It comes right out of the slave market. Jesus is our redemption payment. You, when Paul wrote this letter to Rome, it's been estimated by some historians that nearly half of Rome were all slaves. Can you imagine it? Over half of Rome. Nearly half of Rome, all slaves. Now, we just we don't know. It's a high number. And, and, and most people who are slaves are slaves for life. Some of them were slaves because they conquered lands and put people into slavery. Another very common way that people in Rome became slaves throughout the empire was they owed people money and they couldn't pay it, so they put them into slavery until they could pay their payment. But here's the problem. You don't make a whole lot of money as a slave. So many were slaves for life. The only hope you had was if you had a loved one, a friend, someone who cared about you and had the means to pay your ransom debt. You come and pay it. And more times than not, almost every chance, it just didn't happen. And so you were trapped in your slavery. The scripture says that without Jesus, we are a slave to sin. 
And the wage of sin again is death. And we can't really pay it. Even with our physical death, it doesn't pay it because we're not good enough to pay it. So catch what God does. He sees this enormous debt, and he says, I'm going to pay it, and then some. Like, no matter what debt we have, when Jesus died for us, there's a whole lot left over. Like, he extravagantly paid the debt. It's like if you owed a hundred bucks, and I just throw down a million for it. And the person said, well, wait a minute, you only, they only owed a hundred. I said, I'll take the million, they're worth it. I love them that much. Jesus paid it all. Completely. Debt paid so we can be free. But here's the problem. We've got to accept it by faith. The debt's been paid, but it only works if we accept it. And here's the problem with humanity. More times than not, people say, I don't want to accept that payment. I'm going to stay a slave to sin. And the consequences. But what's the scripture say? No, no, no. It's the kindness of God. It's the goodness of God. And so I played with you this morning. Think about this. The gospel is so, so good. The bad news is bad. No doubt. But the good news is so, so good that it should just cause us to leap to want to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. To walk with Him. So we understand why Paul in Romans 1.16 says, Listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I stand before you this morning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. And you can be sitting here this morning and say, but I have such little faith. And I want to tell you, it's not the size of your faith that saves anyone. Jesus saves. A little faith in the hands of an ultimate Savior is enough to totally redeem you. To totally cover your sins. To totally make you right with God. The instrument of our salvation is Jesus himself. He's the basis. And by faith we receive him. Francis Schaeffer explains it this way. He says, listen, he says, our faith has no saving value. Catch that. Our faith has no saving value. Our religious works, our moral good works have no saving value because they're not perfect. Our suffering has no saving value. We would have to suffer infinitely because we've sinned against an infinite God. The only thing, he writes, the only thing in God's entire moral universe with the power to save us is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our faith merely accepts the gift, and God justifies all those who believe in Jesus for their salvation. No doubt, we have an unholy togetherness we all share. That before God, we're all in need of a Savior. Whether you identify with a younger brother because you say, man, I have a story, I, I know my badness, I know, I know what I've done wrong. Or, or whether you identify with the older brother and say, I haven't been as bad as that. We all are on equal footing at the cross. Any finite act against an infinite God is infinite consequences. But praise the Lord. Any finite act of an infinite God has infinite consequences. And Jesus died for you and me. He gave it all so we could have life. And I just ask this morning, if you haven't received Jesus, why not this morning? And if you have, if you have, maybe it was years ago, and it's become so, I don't know, common. 
Jesus, thank you so much for your profound love for us. You didn't just tell us you loved us, you showed it. You died on the cross for our sins. We understand when we look at the bad news, it's really bad news. And it's a shame that so many people stop with the bad news because the good news is so, so good. But although we find ourselves in this unholy togetherness before the cross, all of us in need of a Savior, and equally in need of a Savior, no matter what our history has been, we're equally in need of a Savior, that you died for all of us, that you love each and every one of us, and all we need to do is by faith receive you as Lord and Savior to receive that salvation. Lord, I pray if someone has yet to do that, they would do it even now, and for those of us who have that, that fire, that joy, that gratefulness of our salvation, Lord God, would be stoked red hot in our life. That as we scatter from this place, that those around us who have yet to hear the good news would see it in the way we live, that they would see it on our face, that they would hear it in our words, and Lord, that they would understand your kindness, that they, through your goodness, Father God, they too would be drawn to you. And Lord, I pray that until every single person in our region has a repeated opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. For your glory, Lord, would you do a work in our life and through this region once again that only you can do. May it be a fresh wind of the fire of your spirit, stoked red hot, that places like Buffalo and Rochester and Victor and Canandaigua and Syracuse, Lord God, that these would be known as places where Jesus' love reigns. And Lord, thank you for the fact that that's only possible because of what you did on the cross for each and every one of us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.